Welcome back to Introvert University. My name is Harrison Paul, the Introvert Philosopher, and this is Lecture 3 of my course on the Philosophy and Science of Introversion. This lecture is entitled, The Functional Stack and the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. Over the last two lectures, I've explained how Carl Jung, Swiss psychoanalyst of the early 20th century, theorized the concepts of introversion and extroversion based on his theories about the two directions of the mind and his view that many of our mental processes are unconscious. Jung theorizes that in addition to operating in two directions, the mind also operates with four different functions, thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition. Each function describes a certain way of engaging with experience and also describes what energizes a person using that function. Jung argues that people will develop one of these functions as their primary or dominant function in understanding and navigating human experience, and that whether this function is introverted or extroverted determines whether someone is an extrovert or introvert. In addition, people with different functions will see the world in different ways. As mentioned last time, Jung's model posits eight mental functions. Because these will be important to our discussion in this lecture, I'll briefly go over each of them again. First, we have extroverted thinking, or TE, which is drawn to systems of facts in the world around us. Extroverted feeling, or FE, is drawn to people, relationships, and other people's systems of values. Extroverted sensation, or SE, is drawn to having immediate sensory experiences. Extroverted intuition, or NE, is drawn to possibilities in the environment. Introverted thinking, or TI, uses internal logic to think about manipulating theories or physical objects. Introverted feeling, or FI, uses internally felt values to discover an ideal. Introverted sensation, or SI, reflects on bodily experiences through memory. And introverted intuition, or NI, reflects on ideas that spontaneously appear to the mind, or which represent unconsciously discerned patterns. In Chapter 10 of Psychological Types, Jung says that he believes people differ in their dominant function on the basis of internal principles, which we today would refer to as genetic differences. He's referring here to what we now call an inborn temperament. He also argues that we were born with the tendency to use a second function in a supportive but lesser capacity. Each of the eight types could go two different routes, making 16 subtypes which is where the popular Myers-Briggs system gets its idea of 16 types. Each type has distinctive characteristics, and a person's type doesn't change in someone's lifetime. But types can manifest in different ways, so people with the same type will have different personality traits. This will be important later, because someone's personality expression is only partially based on their inborn type. And now, to clarify one point, I said that types differ on the basis of an internal principle, or what we today would call genetic reasons. While this is correct, it may be somewhat misleading. The way our society and our dominant way of viewing the world would see this explanation today would be genetics. This is because the dominant paradigm of our society, which we might controversially call a global religion, is scientific naturalism. In mainstream society, science is true, not just useful, and science really can describe the mind. However, for Jung, as well as for many adherents to religions that don't believe in scientific naturalism, the mind itself is beyond the scope of science and can only be encountered by our own experiences 
that we have by being minds and then theorizing about these experiences. So while Jung might say that we can find evidence of type and temperament in science, we can't fully explain the mind scientifically. The mind itself always comes from a place where science cannot go, and we can never fully understand why it is inclined in one direction or another, although we can speculate and see and even create scientific reasons for it. In this way, type can be said to have a genetic basis, but we need to recognize that this is a limited claim. Type is a property of the mind, and the mind is not fully reducible to material causes, unless you subscribe to scientific naturalism. The mind is a mystery in Jung's system, and one that only introspection can discover. This is why discovering one's type and also reaching psychological wholeness are introspective ventures, because while I may be able to give you a report on the manifestations of your personality, I can't tell you about your own mind. You are the authority on your mind. Not any personality test, not any other person. Although they can be coaches to help you along the way. This means that you need to learn to delve deeply into your mind and encounter it for yourself so that you can learn about it. To go back to our main discussion, there are many approaches to types out there. Today, I'll go over the most dominant view of type, the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is the basis for most of the claims about type today, including many claims about introversion, online and in print. I believe that the Myers-Briggs approach and others based on it have a lot to offer, but that they have made some innovations to Jung's original theory, which have important implications for the history of the concepts of introversion and types. By understanding these innovations, we can better understand the introvert mind and type oppression in society. To take one example, articles online often give a very rosy picture of the potential of each type, particularly the introverted types in society, such as in reaching their dreams or becoming powerful leaders. I give what I consider a more realistic view on psychological typing. I'm trying to be closer to Jung here, who talked about the talents and propensities of each type, but mainly emphasized the psychological problems that each type was likely to experience on account of their type. I also see type oppression all around me in the structure of our societies, and I pull no punches in telling you what the dominant extroverted world thinks of you and your type, because I believe it's better to know so you know how to deal with it than not know and be punished and oppressed for invisible and inscrutable reasons. Maybe knowing this will also help us challenge these oppressive structures and inspire society to be better. Let's begin then by talking about Jung's view of the functions other than the dominant function. Now, a lot of this has to be pieced together from a very small amount of content because he only takes about three pages to talk about this system at the very end of chapter 10. Jung calls the first function someone develops their dominant function and their second function the auxiliary function. Why does he say this? It's part of his argument that no one is only introverted or only extroverted. Jung explains it this way. When someone only uses one function to engage with experience, they're going to be imbalanced and will eventually, perhaps as a child or in early adolescence, realize the need to balance out their mental functioning with the opposite attitude. So an introvert will mainly use an introverted function and be drawn toward the world of the self, but develop an extroverted function to navigate the physical world as this increasingly becomes a necessity. Vice versa for the extroverted type, who naturally navigates the world, but needs to develop more self-reflection and self-consciousness about personal values, logic, or other features of the mind. So where does this auxiliary function come from? 
why do we develop one function and not another? To talk about this, we first have to talk about the inferior function. Jung argues that our conscious dominant function has its opposite in the unconscious mind. In essence, as we develop one side of our minds consciously, our unconscious mind will compensate by developing the opposite function. This would be the function that is the opposite attitude, introverted or extroverted, and the opposing kind of function, thinking versus feeling, sensation versus intuition. He calls this opposite function the inferior function. Referring to my charts on my website may be helpful for this, harrisonpaulauthor.weebly.com, and then go into the page for Introvert University. For example, if my dominant function is NI, introverted intuition, then my inferior function would be SE, extroverted sensing. Introverted opposed by extroverted, intuition opposed by sensing. If you think about it, this really is the opposite function. NI is wholly absorbed in the mind and the images of the unconscious, seeing the deep patterns and the archetypes, or perhaps we'd call them the platonic forms in the universe, something completely abstracted away from sensory experience. Its opposite, SE, is the most sensory function, the most useful for physical life, which engages in the moment with physical sensations of the body. Jung suggests that a person will be most capable with their dominant function, and this will represent their highest ideal, such as the insights of an NI type, the personal values of an FI type, or the intensity of immediate bodily experience for an SE type. He also suggests that someone's inferior function will express their strongest desire, such as the SE type who wants to be seen as insightful, NI, the FI type who wants her values to have objective justification, TE, and the NI type who wants to actualize his visions and the perfect world of his mind in the physical world, SE. We naturally do our dominant function best, but we are drawn toward our inferior function in order to become psychologically whole. AJ Drenth of Personality Junkie also has some great articles on this. Yet we can't develop our inferior function so quickly, since it's the opposite of our dominant. It might be something like trying to evaluate a movie as both a fan and a critic at once. The fan in you wants to just love everything about it, while the critic wants to pick at all of the inconsistencies and plot holes. It's hard to enjoy the movie, and it's arguably impossible to be both a good critic and a good fan at the same time. You have to keep switching back and forth. And if you don't choose one of them, you will probably end up doing a poor job of both, until you have a lot of practice doing one and then doing the other. Even more so for psychological functions. A person's dominant and inferior functions are completely different perspectives. And if you want to learn to see the world from the perspective of your inferior function, or to master the abilities locked away in that part of your unconscious mind, you need to balance yourself out first. This is where the auxiliary function comes in. On Jung's theory, each person will have inborn tendencies toward developing a second function, which is complementary to the first without being opposite. For example, for NI, introverted intuition, it would be FE or TE, extroverted feeling or thinking. This is because both feeling and thinking are judging or rational functions, remember from last time, that arrange experiences, not perceiving or irrational functions like intuition and sensation that just take in experiences. But depending on the person's inner qualities, they will be able to develop either an FE or TE function as their auxiliary, if they're an NI type. Note that there are two options here, which gives each of Jung's eight types two subtypes. This means that there are two patterns to balancing yourself out as an NI type. 
either being drawn to systems of facts in the external environment, like scientific theories or frameworks of rules, or to systems of values, such as the values people affirm when they express their opinions. To give another example, the SE type, extroverted sensation, can also go in two directions with the auxiliary function, introverted thinking or TI, which develops a knack for logic, debate, or manipulating objects, or introverted feeling, FI, which develops an appreciation of values or people's uniqueness and value as people. A person's auxiliary function will never be as strong as their dominant function, and they won't be as capable with it. But it will be their way of developing their opposite attitude, the extroverted side of an introvert or the introverted side of an extrovert. This auxiliary function, like the inferior function, is still uncontrollable and part of the unconscious mind until the person develops it. So a person will develop this function out of their unconscious part of their mind as they become more conscious of some of their opposite tendencies. If someone tries to directly develop their inferior function, they won't be able to manage it because it's so different from their dominant. We can think of this as a natural consequence or a natural balance. You can't have it all and do everything. There are psychological trade-offs, we might say. So if you're deep in your head developing insight, your ability to engage with the sensory world weakens. We might reference here Plato's Allegory of the Cave, where the philosopher who sees the light of truth outside stumbles around in the darkness when he tries to bring this back to his cave-dwelling fellows. Likewise, if you focus on physical excellence, you'll naturally be less capable of detaching from the body to engage with the unconscious mind. However, in time, after we learn to reconcile opposites in a more balanced way with our auxiliary function, we will gradually learn to incorporate our opposing tendencies into a complete harmony. After someone develops their auxiliary function, they will have their two main ways of dealing with human experience, one introverted function and one extroverted function. People have two other functions as well, which Jung often refers to as their two inferior functions. We've talked about one of these already. Both of these lie in the unconscious, able to be developed, but only in time and with great care. A person will likely never have much control over these functions, but they will drive the person's mental development, and they can integrate them into their whole self if they're attuned to their unconscious mind. We've talked about the inferior function opposite to the dominant function, but what about this other inferior function? Jung never refers to it this way, but other typologists, such as Drenth, refer to it as the tertiary function. It is the third function down, right after the auxiliary, and it's the complete opposite of the auxiliary. So an auxiliary TE, extroverted thinking, would have an opposite tertiary function of FI, introverted feeling. Jung barely mentions this in one measly line of his book. And he also seems to contradict this in other places by saying that both inferior functions are the opposite attitude to a person's dominant function. But I believe that it is more internally consistent with his system to say that the tertiary function, or higher inferior function, is the opposite to the auxiliary, and that in learning to reconcile these opposite functions of the mind, the person becomes ready to reconcile their dominant and inferior functions. Isabel Myers, whose views we'll explore later, also interpreted Jung in this way, and I think she was right about this. We get an image, then, of a stack of functions that constitute a person's psychological type, not merely one dominant function. You have the dominant function at the top, followed by the auxiliary function. We could then draw a line after this, because these are the two most conscious functions that are above the line of consciousness and under conscious control, so to speak. Below the line of consciousness, we have our 
two lower functions, the tertiary and finally the inferior. Typologists like Drenth call this the functional stack, since it is a, a stack of functions, and it is different for each of the two variations on each of the eight types. Because each subtype's functional stack is different, we can speak of 16 psychological types. This, we can say, is Jung's system of psychological typing. It relies heavily on the idea that we have conscious and unconscious mental processes, and that we only become psychologically whole if we learn to reconcile them and balance them out in our minds. It also relies on the premise that the mind functions in eight fundamentally different ways, depending on our dominant mental function and type attitude, and that the dominant and auxiliary function we're predisposed to develop determine the rest of our stack of functions and the kind of psychological development we could have, or we will need to have in order to achieve psychological wholeness. This was the philosophical approach of psychological types, or Jung's theory about the mind. While it didn't have an enormous influence in its day, certainly not the influence that Jung's teacher Freud had with his theory of the mind as the id, ego, and superego, it did have some devoted followers in academia and outside of it. One of Jung's most devoted disciples was a layperson, a highly intellectual homemaker and writer named Catherine Briggs. Briggs lived in Washington, D.C. with her researcher husband in the late 19th and early to mid-20th century, and she resonated with Jung's theories, not only about psychological types, but also about the mind in general. Oxford English professor Merv Emery has recently published an excellent book that she dubs a biography of the Myers-Briggs type indicator called The Personality Brokers, where she describes the lives and careers of Catherine Briggs and Isabel Myers, the creators of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, or what I'll refer to as the MBTI. I'll be drawing from this biography for my next section. So we start with Catherine Briggs, who was born in Michigan in 1875, the same year as Carl Jung. Catherine Briggs believed that it was her responsibility as a mother to shape her children into the best people they could be and use the best methods to do so. As a mother, she applied her intellect toward training her daughter and only surviving child, Isabel, to develop her personality, and even wrote a popular column about child raising in a magazine until Isabel left home for college. When Isabel left, Catherine felt herself without a vocation, and for years she wondered how to use her talents. She studied people in her spare time, and even came up with her own typology that sorted people's minds into four categories. It was shortly after this that she encountered Jung's psychological types, and when she read his work, she was quickly convinced that his system was superior to hers and embraced it. In a short time, she became obsessed with Jung and his theories. She read psychological types like a Bible. She saw Jung almost like a prophet or religious figure, and herself as Jung's disciple. She interpreted her friend's children's dreams for them in Jungian style, looking for the symbols that would reveal complexes or invoking elements of the unconscious. She believed in seeking for unconscious insight based on one's type, as a sort of spiritual journey of self-discovery. She wrote to Jung for advice on implementing his ideas, and even met him once, briefly in person, when he came to a conference in the U.S. She believed that knowing one's type could help someone live a better life. So in her spare time, she wrote articles for the New Republic about Jung's ideas, including one with a chart that showed simplified descriptions of the types for the lay reader. She and her daughter discussed this system frequently and would have conversations where they would type people in their neighborhood or invite people over to probe for their type with questions. 
Catherine's daughter, Isabel, met her husband, Clarence Chief Myers, in college, so after her marriage, she became Isabel Myers. Isabel shared her mother's love of studying types, but she had a less theoretical and more practical purpose in her work. Rather than encouraging people to study the intense, symbol-laden theories of Jung to find psychological enlightenment, like some sort of New Age religion, she believed that knowing one's type could help someone find the right job, the right vocation in life, ways to appreciate diverse talents at work, and a path toward better relationships in the home. She believed that people who knew their type could know where they fit into society, and society would also know how to appreciate them for their unique gifts. Myers continued her mother's work in typing people, and even observed different tendencies and characteristics people who shared the same type shared with one another. She eventually put together a classification system for testing someone's type that drew heavily from Jung's work. Catherine began experimenting with the idea of a questionnaire for types, and Isabel spent the rest of her life refining it. In her final draft, she would test people on four dimensions of personality. She calls them preferences. First, if someone was introverted or extroverted, based on their direction of mental energy. Although, since this was far too technical for the layperson, she would simplify by asking if they liked large groups or small gatherings and questions like this. Second, she would determine if they were more likely to be drawn toward ideas and possibilities or concrete objects and experiences. In Jung's system, this would presumably test whether they had an upper function that was sensing or one that was intuitive. Third, she would test whether thinking or feeling came more naturally by questions about whether the person focused more on data and objects or people and feelings when making decisions. Finally, she would test someone's engagement with the external world as either judging and rational or perceiving and irrational, such as if they preferred schedules or spontaneity, and determine which function, a judging or perceiving one, was their upper extroverted function. Once again, see the tables on my website for some visuals of this. Essentially, Isabel adapted her mother's ideas into a system where people could test each other with an easy-to-read questionnaire and determine someone's type. This was then used to help people find their ideal career, spouse, or life mission. At a time when personality surveys were becoming popular in efficiency-craving businesses, Isabel created the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, naming it in part honorarily after her mother who inspired her work, and began marketing it in the 1940s. It took her several decades to become noticed, and she had to do much of her work herself, harried by scientists and professional personality researchers who critiqued her often unscientific methods. But by the late 1970s, the MBTI had become a popular way to test someone's personality. Backed with detailed descriptions of the types given by Jung and extrapolated out by Briggs and Myers, the MBTI became, in the 1980s and onward, an extremely popular instrument for determining someone's type and for helping people find their purpose in life. As I've studied Myers' work, I've been impressed with how she grasped many elements of Jung's system that she incorporated into her highly systematized theory of types. In her book, Gifts Differing, published around the time of her death in 1980, she effectively describes Jung's idea of mental functions and the interplay between the dominant and auxiliary functions. She calls them processes. She also describes the marginalization that introverts face when people assume that their second function is who they really are and underestimate them, as well as how introverts are forced to develop their extroverted side and often not allowed to be themselves. 
In addition, she describes the different functions with reference to Jung's descriptions and discusses how introverted and extroverted types differ in how they use their functions. She even talks about how the inferior functions can disrupt healthy development and show different external traits in a person than expected. And she developed detailed descriptions of the types based on Jung's theory and her own observations. Her system made great progress in understanding human diversity and promoting a vision of the world where everyone could be appreciated for becoming the best version of themselves and appreciating others for who they are. In particular, she took Jung's theory out of its narrow focus on psychological problems and into a focus on ordinary people finding their place in life due to their mental functioning. However, she also introduced some innovations to Jung's theory that would prove important for the development of introversion, even if they were not entirely faithful to Jung's original ideas. So what exactly happened when these ideas were transmitted from Jung to Briggs and Myers? I want us to appreciate the contributions that Briggs and Myers made to the study of introversion and typing, but as with all thinkers, they made some mistakes, and I believe that by studying these mistakes and why they made them, we can continue our pursuit of a better understanding of introversion. Myers used Jung's theory to inform her system, and she argued that people fall into 16 types that don't change over a person's lifespan, and that much about a person can be determined by where they fall in this type paradigm. When she was testing someone, she didn't think it mattered if someone scored slightly higher on introversion than someone else, or if one person was very strongly intuitive and another was barely above the 50% mark. Jung's system said that types are mutually exclusive ways of looking at the world, and so that's how she interpreted her test. This makes sense, of course, if you're using Jung's theory as Jung framed it. In his philosophy of the mind, a person is either more introverted or more extroverted. A person either uses a sensation or intuitive function and a thinking or feeling function as their top two functions, and they either engage with the world in a judging or a perceiving way. However, Jung never prescribed a measurement tool to determine someone's type. In fact, based on his book and his target audience of the work, he seems to have thought that only a trained psychotherapist should determine someone's type, and then only after hours of observations and session, and only for the purpose of diagnosing a psychological problem and prescribing treatment. He explicitly spoke out against people using his system as a parlor game to determine each other's type. As he says in the forward to the Argentine edition of his book, it is wrong in his view for someone to skip to the end of the book to see the type descriptions, chapter 10, without understanding the whole philosophy behind them that he develops in the first nine chapters. Yet it seems like Myers may have done just that. For example, in her book, Gifts Differing, she talks about the four kinds of preferences before the eight mental functions or dominant ways of using the mind, even though the functions are the crux of Jung's whole system. She enshrines these trait preferences, whether someone scores higher on extroversion versus introversion, sensing versus intuiting, thinking versus feeling, and judging versus perceiving, and then goes into how the mind works through dominant and auxiliary processes. This is exactly the opposite of what we'd expect for someone drawing from Jung who understood him. They would ground their theory in the functions and then only use the preferences as ways of potentially measuring which process was more dominant. A true Jungian would even admit that sometimes people are drawn to their inferior functions and therefore may display preferences for the opposite of what they actually are deep down, which would invalidate the entire test. 
Myers doesn't seem to consider this except as an afterthought. Instead, she seems to place her faith in the indicator that she's created. She believed that the indicator was the key, not the theory of types. So she trusted more in external indicators of personality than the theory itself of people's internal processing, even though she used both in her type descriptions. She created her indicator based on the theory and what external manifestations it might show as personality traits, and then she tested it out on others. After analyzing her results, she must have seen some inconsistencies between results and theory. For example, Jung's theory indicates that TE types, such as ESTJs, will plod carefully through decisions based on objective criteria and not be quick to make decisions, since that would be more of a spontaneous ESTP thing to do. But Myers says several times in her book that TE types like to dramatically emphasize their points, when this is actually more consistent with an SE way of doing things if you read Jung. It appears that when Myers tested many business executives who acted spontaneously and decisively and came to quick decisions and spoke in dramatic ways to emphasize their points, many showed up as ESTJs. How could she explain this? She could have chosen to modify her test, seeing that its results were inconsistent with Jung's theory. Perhaps we can guess that her questions that were testing for the JP difference were testing for whether someone was well-organized, which is a personality trait that any type may or may not have, but executives tend to have more of. Instead, she held to the belief that her test found the truth, and she incorporated what she saw in the results backward, retconning it into the theory. As such, she created a system that measured someone's externally visible, self-reported personality traits and claimed that this could determine someone's type, which is not what Jung said at all. Jung's types are about someone's temperament, which recent personality research claims, according to the scientific paradigm, is only half of the story when talking about someone's personality. The other half is environment, from education to political beliefs to culture to upbringing. To give another example, one criticism of the MBTI by researchers in Meyer's lifetime was that the questions that tested for the sensing versus intuitive preference, S versus N, were stronger indicators of someone's political preference than anything else. Liberals scored intuitive and conservatives scored sensing. It is telling that Myers' system is usually called personality typing, not psychological typing. We can see here that it relies on someone's personality, which is a combination of genetic and environmental influences, and not on their temperament, which is genetic only, while claiming validity as a way of determining one's temperament from its connection to Jung. Why exactly did Myers make this decision? It could be that Myers may have misinterpreted Jung because she wasn't very interested in his work overall. She appreciated his idea of types, but she got that from her mother. Remember how I said that Briggs met Jung in person once in her life? Well, Myers was there too with her mother. What well, was a high point in Catherine Briggs's life, meeting her hero in person? Isabel Myers reported in later years when asked that she didn't even remember what they talked about. She didn't even listen. While Catherine translated some of Jung's ideas to her, Isabel was most interested in the practical aspects of the work and not the deeper theories underlying the type descriptions. Maybe this is why she missed some of Jung's key ideas. She may have even mistyped herself. Isabel always claimed that she was an INFP and her mother an INFJ. Yet reading her work and reading her mother's biography, it is clear to me that both had brilliant analytic minds, came to insights, and created systems based on those insights. These are clear characteristics of the INTJ. And I, as a fellow INTJ who has learned to spot others of my type, believe that both were INTJs. 
Now, I don't want you to get the impression that I reject all of what Myers and Briggs contributed to types. They contributed the important idea of 16 distinct types, as well as the idea that we can apply Jung's system to more than just determining psychological disorders. And there are many true believers of MBTI who say that it's changed their life, myself among them. I was amazed that the description of the INTJ fits so perfectly with my own natural inclinations and came to learning about types because of this system. Sometimes, perhaps when someone's personality lines up just right with their temperament, MBTI reveals someone's type. And as Catherine Briggs believed too, this is a powerful and can even be seen as a spiritual experience. I also sympathize with them as people from lower social situations who had to deal with elitist colleagues looking down on them and their work. As women in the 20th century and without professional degrees, Catherine and Isabel were seen as amateurs, especially when Isabel tried to make the case that her MBTI should be taken seriously for the good it could do. She was fiercely independent because she knew there was something good about this, that the men with power and prestige were too proud and blinded by their own education to see. I too don't have a PhD, and like a 20th century mother, I as a 21st century high school teacher have an important job that nonetheless won't do much to advance my career as a philosopher or psychology researcher. Not to mention that my introversion is an impediment to further professional development. I'm amazed at the impact that two obscure women, likely both introverts, and likely also of my same INTJ type, could have on a world so clearly stacked against them. But it is exactly this world that gives us another clue as to what we can learn from Myers' mistakes. Myers frequently emphasized that all types are equal. People of all types have equal value. She drew from this the conclusion that every type would be ideally suited to perform some function or kind of job in society. So the MBTI was, in part, meant to figure this out and give career guidance. Since we're philosophers here, let's construct an argument to potentially discover her logical reasoning to this conclusion. Premise one, people of all types have equal value. Premise two, people of equal value each contribute something equally valuable to society. Premise three, each equally valuable contribution to society is expressed by a certain kind of job or social function. Premise four, each type makes a unique and mutually exclusive contribution from any other type. Conclusion, every type is ideally suited to perform some function or job in society. Notice the chain of logic does lead to the conclusion, but there are some big assumptions we have to make here, particularly in premises two and three. Is it true that having equal value means making an equal contribution to society? If so, then would we say that people whose natural talents are to invent new technology or speak persuasively, and people whose natural talents are to appreciate nature or care for children at home or just feel really sad when there's conflict, make equal contributions? Perhaps we could, but only if society appreciates everyone's contributions equally. But then how do we make sense of premise three? We could only believe that equally valued contributions are expressed by a certain job or function if we had a perfectly just society that appreciated everyone's talents. More likely, we would have a society where some people's talents are appreciated and some are not. In contemporary society today, think about how this would play out. We reward the inventor and the orator with money and praise and a job. But we give the nature appreciator's job to someone who knows how to produce something with nature, not just appreciate it. We don't know what to do with the daydreamer or the conflict-averse person, and we push the child-raising homemaker out of the economy entirely. Myers herself, referencing Jung, 
mentions that introverts will be misunderstood and undervalued by society because their strongest talents are invisible. She also notes that many more men are thinking types and women are feeling types. And given the male-dominated world of work in the 20th century that Myers was studying, surely we can argue that typically masculine thinking talents were valued over typically feminine feeling talents. From this, I think we can conclude that there's an important social dimension here that the MBTI doesn't fully take into account. Not everyone's talents suit them for a job or function in a society if that society doesn't appreciate their talents. So while a society built on Myers' premise that all types are equal might have a place for everyone, we at least have a good reason to question whether any society does or has ever met this standard. This means that rather than trust the Myers-Briggs description of the types, especially which famous people have been of which type and which careers or socially valued abilities each type has to offer, we should be skeptical. We shouldn't assume that each type can equally contribute to any of our current societies, but perhaps we should study and more deeply understand people and their talents so we can design societies that allow us to appreciate, develop, and benefit from people as they authentically are or can be, rather than how society, based by the type-driven value paradigms of the dominant extroverted type, wants people to be. We can also benefit from consulting different paradigms, such as religious or philosophical systems, that may show us the value that unappreciated types have to offer. So, I clearly believe that MBTI falls short as a theory of types in many ways. Still, MBTI helped frame the conversation that we should appreciate people for their inborn talents and not expect them to be like someone else. And for that, its creators deserve due appreciation. They also contributed to the view that introversion and other important traits could be measured on a personality scale and arguably helped lead to the next development in introversion, that of personality trait theory. But because I don't agree with them that measuring someone's personality adequately determines their type, even if it does in some cases, I won't use their terminology when discussing Jung's types. Jung talked about eight types, so my 16 types start with each type's dominant function. The second part of the name uses the type's auxiliary function, since that is the one that plays the secondary role in mental functioning, and because from this you can determine the type's bottom two functions. See the chart on my website for the names I've given them and how they're related to one another. In what I call the Neo-Jungian type system, you have the SETI, or SETI, and SEFI, or CEFI types, instead of the ESTP and ESFP, the TESI and TENI types for ESTJ and ENTJ, FESI and FENI for ESFJ and ENFJ, and NETI and NEFI for ENTP and ENFP. On the introverted side, we have TICE and TINE for ISTP and INTP, FICE and FINE for ISFP and INFP, SIGHT and SIF for ISTJ and ISFJ, and NIGHT and KNIFE for INTJ and INFJ. Maybe these are weird names and they aren't as catchy as the Myers-Briggs names, so I'd appreciate some feedback on better ones. But I think this clearly defines what we're talking about. So we've gone through Jung's system of typing, as well as what might be considered progress or a detour through Myers-Briggs, and now back to my system, the Neo-Jungian system. But we might ask, aside from Isabel Myers and Catherine Briggs, who else tried to advance Jung's ideas about introversion and extroversion? In our next lecture, 
We'll go through the history of Jung's concept of types, particularly his influential ideas of introversion and extroversion, and how scientists in the discipline Jung helped to found, psychology, approached his research. We'll also talk about the genesis of an idea not supported by Jung, Myers, or Briggs, the ambivert, and how this influenced the development of our understanding of introversion. You can find me on my website, harrisonpaulauthor.weebly.com, my Amazon page with the Own Voices Introvert Fantasy Series, Cabri vs. the Angels, my Facebook page, Harrison Paul Author, and my Twitter feed, hpaulauthor. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope this has helped you on your journey of psychological self-discovery.